Back in 2013, there was a traumatic, horrendous, really, story that came out in the American news. Down in Cleveland, Ohio, it was discovered that a man by the name of Ariel Castro had over the course of 10 years essentially kidnapped three teenage girls and held them hostage in his house as slaves. He impregnated one of them. She had a six-year-old, and eventually she was able to escape from the house with her six-year-old, inform the police. This man was arrested. He was convicted, and he was sentenced to 1,000 years in jail, eventually taking his own life. Now, this is a, a horrendous story, and it's unfortunately rare in North America for stories like this to come out, but around the world, researchers tell us that in our generation, there still might be somewhere between, and this is a pretty broad number, 20 and 50 million people serving in some sort of unpaid indentured service. In other words, modern slaves. And this is a travesty, and I know there's many organizations that are speaking out against modern slavery, sex slavery in particular, and we should do the same. But how often do you hear people in mainstream society speak out against spiritual slavery? Because you know that 20 to 30 or 20 to 50 million people that are involved in slavery, did you know that there are probably around 7.4 billion people on planet earth today that are trapped in spiritual slavery? They're not born again. They've never been regenerated by the word of God. They're not Christians. They are enslaved to sin. And folks, that should break our hearts. It really should. And we are right to condemn it. One of the things that Paul is very concerned about as he writes this letter, this epistle to the Galatian church many years ago is the temptation that people have to fall back into or to embrace spiritual slavery. And how does that come about? Well, you know how one of, the, one of the distinguishing characteristics between an employee and a slave is that when you work as an employee, there's an incentive, a paycheck, or maybe some promotions or job satisfaction. But when you're a slave, there's no opportunities for advancement. There are no incentives. There's no paycheck. There's no thankful boss at the end of the year, congratulating you for contributing to the growth of the company. Well, spiritual slavery is called just that because there are many people in our world today that work and work and work. They labor and they labor and they labor to try to make themselves noticeable to the gods or to God. But there's no advancement that they're going to experience because of that under the moral, civil, ceremonial laws that God had given to his old covenant people, there was much blessing to be had. There's many blessings to God's laws. God's laws, once we've encountered God, help us to advance in our sanctification, to figure out how to live holy lives. God's laws serve to restrain evil in a wicked culture. That's another advantage. God's laws also serve to remind us of our own inadequacy because inevitably we break them. And they're supposed to, in that respect, drive us toward God 
so that we might understand and experience our need for grace. So the law has that function under the old covenant and even into our current circumstances. But the law was never intended to advance your standing with God until you repented of your sins and accepted his free gift of eternal life. Now, a lot of people don't understand this because you'll hear people talk about the age of the law and the age of grace, which is not biblical language. It's made up language. God did not save people under the law in some past generation. Proof of this is recorded for us in books like Romans. In Romans chapter four, verses nine and 10, and it uses the word circumcised here to refer to those who were under the old covenant, the Jews primarily, and a few Gentile outliers who had been integrated into the nation. It says there in Romans four, verses nine to 10, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, meaning for only for the Jews, only those under the covenant? or also for the uncircumcised, the non-Jews. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So the idea there is that if anyone thinks, well, no, 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 being under the law, being part of the old covenant, the sign and seal of which is circumcision, that, that's what makes you right before God. Paul's like, uh, no, because Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness before his circumcision, which means he did not yet have the sign and seal of the covenant upon him. So how was it that God justified Abraham? By works of the law or by faith in God's promises? By faith in God's promises. This is right back, to the beginning of the old covenant. So springboarding off that idea, again, we need to remind ourselves, no one in human history has ever been released from sin and made right before God through works of the law. But I will remind you once again, that doesn't mean the law is bad. Laws restrain evil. Laws show us our sin. Laws provide barriers and boundaries to live within but they do not advance your standing with God any more than being in physical slavery advances your career or advances your financial status. Only God's grace and Christ's exclusive work on the cross at Calvary can accomplish that. So back to Galatians, we've been studying it as a church under the sermon series title called Getting the Gospel Right. And I wanna read for you 10 verses or 11 verses here from Galatians chapter four, beginning at verse 21, as Paul continues to, to drive this lesson home to a church that was starting to drift back into a works-based, law-based gospel. He starts off with a question. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants, meaning they represent two covenants that Paul is going to spend a little bit more time unpacking for us. 
One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So remember on Mount Sinai is where God delivered the foundational law code that his people were to live by. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, speaking to the church. But just as that time he was, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of a slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And then this is his, his take home. This is the point of this allegorization of the Hagar and Sarah account. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to live free or do you want to be a slave? Do you want to live free? Do you want to live a life where you know that you have the gift of eternal life, where you understand that Christ has accomplished something for you that you could not accomplish for yourself? Or do you want to wake up every morning wondering, what do I need to do today to please or appease God? Now, I, I know the answer to that question. All of us want to live as free people. But oftentimes, we find ourselves performing even as Christians who've understood this, as we seek to appropriate it, we fail. And we find ourselves performing good works, seeking to obey the law in order to retain or maintain favor with God. I mean, how many of you would want to be in a marriage within which you literally expect absolute perfection of your spouse but no, it's impossible to ever provide it. That, that'd be a pretty stressful marriage. There are expectations in marriage, and we obviously aim for the best possible marriages we could, we could have, but we also understand that every successful marriage needs grace and forgiveness and second chances and third chances and 70 times seven style forgiveness because there's no such thing as a perfect husband and there's no such thing as a perfect wife. What is it that binds our marriage together? Is it our performance? Oh, you're the perfect husband, the perfect wife. No, it's a covenant. It's a commitment. It's the extension of grace and mercy. It's a commitment to mutual sanctification, mutual growth and holiness. It doesn't mean we're nonchalant about our marriages. It doesn't mean we do whatever we want. It doesn't mean we have no boundaries or principles that guide us. But there's something beautiful and blessed about being married to someone that you know will be faithful to you till death do you part, no matter what. 
Well, the Bible wants us to understand that when it comes to our relationship with God, the church's marriage to Christ. And so the Bible uses the life of Sarah, the rightful legal wife of Abraham, and Isaac, the son that was born from that union, and Hagar, a slave woman, an indentured servant, who also bore a son by the name of Ishmael to Abraham. And it allegorizes the text, and it tells us it's allegorizing the text. And it gives us essentially two contrasts. Here's our options. You want to know what your options are? Here's your options. The first option is you can live your life as a forsaken slave with no legal inheritance. So it, it helps us to understand what being entrapped in works of the law in order to appease God looks like by drawing several notable elements out of the account of Hagar and Ishmael. So if you're unfamiliar with the story, the, the account, I should say, to be more accurate, because it's not fictional, God came to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who were desolate, who were infertile, who were barren, who had no children, who had been collecting their pensions for about 30 years. They were very old. Pushing, both of them were pushing 90 and 100 years of age. And God said, I'm going to give you a child, a son of a prom, the son of promise. And your descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. And Sarah laughed. She's like, that's not possible. I'm, I'm old. But God fulfilled that promise. But prior to doing that, there was a period of waiting. And by the way, when God gives you a promise, there's almost always a period of waiting. And some of the greatest blessings in life come in that period of waiting, not, not even so much in the promise, but in the period of waiting upon the Lord. And they started getting a little ahead of themselves or ahead of God. So Hagar, or Sarah started thinking to herself, well, maybe God didn't literally mean from my body, but maybe he meant through the vehicle of someone else's womb. So maybe I could give my slave woman to my husband. He could have a child with her and that child will be reckoned as mine, kind of as, a, as an adoption of sorts or a child by proxy. So they, they talked about it and they decided this was a good plan. And Hagar conceived and she had a son by the name of Ishmael. So there's several things here. Let me just point out six of them. Number one, Hagar was a slave woman. This was not an attack upon her person, but this is an acknowledgement of her diminished status. Nobody wants the status of slave. Everyone wants to be free. But it's an acknowledgement of her diminished status. Secondly, her son Ishmael was therefore a slave son. This is what it means when it says he was born according to the flesh. They were born, both born through sexual union of a man and a woman. But by being born according to the flesh meant that they had jumped the gun on God's promises and had through carnal means tried to get ahead of God. Third, according to ancient law, he had no inheritance that was rightly his, no future to look forward to. Fourth, there was no promise attached to his entry into the world. He wasn't the heir that God had promised Abraham and Sarah. Fifth, it says he corresponds to Mount Sinai, a reference to the place when God wrote his covenant promises or his, his covenant law, the Ten Commandments, on stone. 
And then it also says he corresponds to present-day Jerusalem. Now that's interesting because most people think of Jerusalem as a, a spiritual place, but here it's sort of thought of as a, a place of slavery, a p- place of the flesh. And the reason for that is that even though Jerusalem was supposed to be the dwelling place of God, the apex of the manifestation of God's presence on earth, it was filled with people who had rejected freedom in Christ and instead were still relying upon works of the law. So in that respect, it was part of the worldly order. And then the sixth notable element of this account is that Ishmael is called a persecutor of God's people. We have an account recorded for us in Genesis 21.9 where Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. And this is interpreted as the slave boy mocking the rightful son, the rightful heir, the son of promise. We also know that the descendants of Ishmael would threaten the descendants of Isaac. Some of the descendants of Ishmael included the Ishmaelites, who just a couple generations later were complicit in selling their cousin, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. A family that had been liberated back to slavery, liberated by God's grace, being sent back into slavery. So those are notable elements for us to be reflecting upon as we seek the applicational point of this text. And the application the applicational point of this text specific to the Galatian church is recorded in verse 31. And what is it? It says, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, have you not paid attention to this? Have you not actually reflected upon what happened in some of these Old Testament narratives? It doesn't mean the law is evil. It does mean that it was temporary and served its purpose. Verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So the gospel, of course, introduces us to the the newer covenant and made it very explicit, even though it really wasn't new theology, it was more explicit theology, that God saves people based upon his grace, that true liberty True freedom from sin is anchored in and founded upon and subject to and dependent upon the amazing grace of God to save wretches like you and I. That's fundamental to the gospel. So through this text, there's some applicational lessons for us to consider. Yes, we affirm the value of God's covenantal law in our sanctification and the restraining of evil and in revealing our need for grace. But the problem is, is that as we look at the law and we start to get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular, and we start to read all those endless lists of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's, we can sort of lose sight of the meta narrative of scripture, God's grace in history. And we start to sort of think, man, Whew, I got a lot of work to do. I mean, I can't even remember all the things I need to do, but I know I got a lot of work to do in order to maintain a right standing with God. Now, if you add to that growing up in a legalistic church 
or growing up under bad preaching or growing up with legalistic parents and you've been taught that you need to get on the hamster wheel of religious effort and run as fast as you can. And maybe at the end of the day, God might open the door and say, okay, you you two can come on in to my eternal kingdom. Life becomes very stressful and you can easily lose sight and appreciation for the amazing gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while you sort of know it in your head and your heart and with your actions, you're a law-based Christian. You're falling into the Galatian heresy which Paul condemns, you remember this, in the opening chapter of Galatians, he actually pronounces eternal damnation on anyone who messes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's some ways that this may express itself in your life. You're committed to morals. You're committed to righteousness. You're committed to the 10 commandments but you start performing these commandments as a way of seeking attention from God. Is that why we do good works? Do we do good works to try to seek attention from God? No, we do good works to worship him as an expression of our worship and love for him. I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to be a cheat. I don't want to be a thief because I want to worship God by demonstrating to him that I'm thankful for the transformation that he's done in my life. So in response, I choose to obey him. My children don't cease to become my children when they disobey me, but it's a good idea for them to obey me. It's good for me and it's good for them. It protects society, but they're my children regardless. And we are God's children regardless because we're in a covenantal permanent relationship with him. But we still dedicate ourselves to obeying him as a means of pleasing him and building the relationship out. Another way that people err in this regard is by seeking to be right, righteous in their deeds versus understanding that they are righteous before God. So there's, one of those is a positional word, one's an an action word. So we, we wanna be right with our words, right with our minds, right with our hearts, right with our deeds. But we need to understand that through Christ, we have been declared to be righteous. The Bible tells us that we've actually inherited the righteousness of Christ, that his status has been granted to us. It's it's kind of weird to think that way because in human relationships, you you can't really give your status to another person. Like if, if you're an immigrant to Canada and you get Canadian citizenship, it's not transferable. Can't put it on Kijiji, you know, just sell it off. Does anybody want Canadian citizenship? I got it, but I'm leaving Canada. Who, who wants it? You can't do that. But through Christ, the righteousness The heavenly citizenship that Jesus Christ possesses has been given to us. Now, I know that some of you grew up in Catholic churches where you were taught that essentially you're made right with God through your works. And I know that some of you grew up in Anabaptist churches, Mennonite churches, where you were taught that you can get your salvation and lose it again, get your salvation and lose it again. 
And I know that some of you are raised in brethren and Baptist churches like I was, where you're taught grace, 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 but you're sort of expected to live as though it's works, works, works. So we all have our backgrounds and our hangups and the pluses and minuses from our ecclesiastical backgrounds. But all of us need to be blessed with this message by making this corrective in our mindset. If any of us thinks that in any way, shape or form, we just happen to be in the right place at the right time, or God is impressed with us because of our religious efforts, or that somehow we gotta continue to try to stay in God's good books through our works, we need to make that corrective today. Our salvation is grounded firmly and squarely and exclusively in the grace of God. Now we wanna do good deeds, again, to honor him, but not as a means of seeking our salvation. So this is option number one. We can pursue the life of slavery by being like, allegorically, the circumstances that surrounded Ishmael and Sarah's life, or Ishmael and Hagar's wife, or here's our second option, you can be a cherished heir with a sure inheritance. And that's what we're all aiming for. By the way, this transitions us, this, this passage serves as a transition to what we'll read about in chapter five, where chapter five talks about the work of the spirit in our lives and the fruit of the spirit that necessarily flows from a life that's been truly transformed. But as we discuss the events of Sarah and Isaac's life, there are also five notable elements that I, I think need to be sort of cycling around in our minds so we can fully benefit from this passage. Number one, and most obviously, Sarah was a free woman. She was not a slave. She was not a concubine. She was the legal wife of Abraham. She had status. She was still waiting for the blessings to be fully realized in her life for a period of time, but she had status. And folks, Christians have status. Not status we've earned, not status that's been awarded to us by a governmental process. We have status. And that status, again, the risk of repeating myself, is the status that Jesus Christ has granted to us. If you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have standing and status before God. And we should be super thankful for that, by the way. It should be cycling through our minds all the time and fueling our worship. Isaac then, the son that was born from the union of Sarah and Abraham, was a free son. Now, <clears throat> I have five kids, and assuming they all continue to behave themselves, when my time comes to go home to glory, they're each going to get 20% of the estate. Now, if one of them really distinguishes themselves, maybe we'll modify those numbers and give them a little bit more. But <clears throat> that's normally how we do it, right? You split your inheritance. However many kids you have, you do the math and you split your inheritance, right? So it's, it's great growing up in a big family until it comes to you know, inheritance time. <laughs> then you want to be a single child. <clears throat> but in ancient times, that's not how it worked. And this takes you know, a little bit of acceptance of ancient customs. The oldest son, the rightful heir, got everything. He's got everything. And 
You'll remember even when Abraham, when Sarah died, Abraham actually remarried and had several other sons. After this, I think he had maybe about six or seven total, often not talked about. But in that account of his other sons, it says they were, they were sent off to the east. It's just like, see you boys. Because Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. He was the free son. And he was the rightful heir to his father's entire estate. This doesn't come up in the scriptures and it wasn't practiced in Old, Old Covenant Israel. But some of the sister nations around Israel had a, had a law. You know the law that says you should honor your father and mother? that your life might be long. They had a law whereby if you dishonored your father and mother or your older brother, you could be put to death, right? I've often reminded my younger brothers of that because I happen to be the oldest brother. <laughs> so this, this is this idea of primogeniture that your, your birth order makes you the primary inheritor of your father's estate. You're the rightful heir. That's really important for us to be thinking about as we seek to understand the point of this text. Fourth, he was the son of promise. God had performed a miracle by enabling Sarah to give birth. By the way, under the old covenant in particular, your ability to have children was very much connected to proof of God's covenantal promises being fulfilled. And have you ever noticed that in Genesis in the first four generations, every generation, it's like, is this actually gonna happen? Because every generation, pretty much there's a fertility issue. Whether it was Sarah or Rachel or Tamar, in every generation, there's a big question mark. Is God going to fulfill his fertility promises? And then through crazy circumstances, he always does. Then you get into Exodus and the problem is reversed. Now you have a super fertility problem. Kids are being born so fast. We can't, you know, there's the, the, the nation's exploding with growth and this offends Pharaoh. But it's, these are deliberate patterns that we see in, in the old covenant in the Old Testament scriptures. Isaac was considered the son of promise. He, he, he did not come about as a result of <clears throat> two people manipulating the circumstances like Hagar and Abraham did. He came about because God spoke it. He said, this is what's gonna happen. And it happened. He's the son of a promise. Jerusalem above is a reference to that which is heavenly in nature. We need to be reminded that the life of faith is possible because the one who, <clears throat> who is above came down condescended. Jesus Christ came down to us because it's impossible for us to go up to God. We tried that at Babel and it didn't work so well. But the God who was above came down to us and made contact with us. By the way, in Revelation 21, 2, it's the same language used of the, the eternal kingdom. Heaven comes down. Why? Because we just have this problem getting up, meaning that we can't earn it. We can't attain it. But God always comes our way because we don't go his way. Romans 3.11, 10 and 11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. By nature, we're always like, yeah, see you, God. We're running the other direction. 
you can be religious and make yourself think that you're seeking God. But from a biblical perspective, God always seeks us and then we respond. This is further evidence of God's grace. So what is the application we're supposed to draw from the account of Isaac and Sarah? Verse 29, we're born according to the spirit. How do we get saved through our own efforts? Through manipulating people? Through manipulating God? Through strategy? No. It's a work of the spirit of God in our lives. And this fuels our worship. Verse 31, we are free. Our status is we're no longer enslaved to sin. It is unfortunate that sometimes Christians live as if they're enslaved to sin. Sometimes Christians need to do a better job in living out the fullness of their salvation, not acting like they used to act, not talking like they used to talk, not spending like they used to spend. But in terms of our status, if you are a true bona fide believer in Jesus Christ, you have freedom in Christ. Verse 28, we're children of a promise. God was the one that initiated God was the one that sought. God is the one that blessed. God is the one that enabled us to repent. It's all God. The more you can attribute your salvation to God, the better your worship will be, by the way. And our Jerusalem is above, verse 26. Our ultimate hope is in the kingdom of God, not in the principalities and powers of this world. So brothers and sisters, these are huge blessings that we have as believers that we need to be reminded of or perhaps here for the first time. A few things for you to take home with you. Number one, if you understand this, you need to get ready to learn to live according to the spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to live according to the spirit? Well, we're gonna learn about that more fully in chapter five, but I'll just tip you off. You have an incredible resource that's been given to you It's called the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God indwells every genuine believer and he is our fuel. So he convicts us of sin. He gives us understanding, first of all, of scripture. So when you're understanding scripture, when you're reading scripture, he helps you to understand it. So this this is taking place. I know this is taking place in in this room right now because all I have at my disposal is words. And my words by themselves aren't very convincing. But when my words reflect God's words, and when I read God's word for you, what God's spirit does is he goes out and he arrests people. He arrests our attention. He gets you thinking. He helps you to understand. In this room, you're making application to your life that I'm not even aware of. This is the work of the spirit in the life of his church as the word of God is is prepared and preached. You're gonna live then according to the spirit. The spirit of God will enable, enable you to become more, peaceful and patient and kind and loving and gentle with other people. Over time, the spirit will do a work in your life to help you to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's in contrast to simply living by a set of legal codes or religious codes. This is lifeless. I'm trying to obey, but I can't. We learn to live by the spirit of God and the spirit when we open our lives to the spirit does a sanctifying, purifying, 
work in our lives. We also get to enjoy the, the grace and the freedom that we have without using it as a cover-up for sin. So let me just say this. I've had some folks in our church say, you know what, <clears throat> before we came to your church, we heard that you preached that because salvation is by grace through faith alone, that Christians can then live in sin and it doesn't matter. I'm like, yeah, no, never preach that, ever, never believed that. We just wanna put works in the right place, not as a means to salvation, but as a natural outflow of it. So a person that's truly been saved will inevitably and necessarily be sanctified. And if you're not sanctified, you are never saved. But we're not gonna front load the gospel of grace with works. So as we preach this message of God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, let's not go out and think, well, then I can do whatever I want. Well, that's not the gospel. That's a corrupt gospel. That's a false gospel. We do believe in good works. We just wanna put it in the right place. As, again, as a necessary and inevitable outflow of the Christian life. This is why if a Christian is caught in sin, what does Galatians 6.1 say? Brothers, you who are spiritual should, should go and restore such a one. So Christians will get caught in sin and they require restoration. If they persist in sin, we have Matthew 18 at our disposal. We actually practice church discipline. And if in that church disciplinary process, 1 Corinthians chapter five, that person persists in sin, then we declare them an unbeliever because the evidence of their life demonstrates that they're an unbeliever. And the church has the authority to do that. A lot of people like to quote that little passage in Matthew, when two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. So that means the church only has to have two or three people. That passage has nothing to do with what duly constitutes a church. That passage has everything to do with the authority that Christ places upon his church so that having been confronted by two witnesses in Matthew 18, if you refuse to repent, those two or three who are gathered together in the name of Christ, meaning under the authority of Christ with an open Bible can declare that person to be an unbeliever based upon their efforts. So we are into church discipline. We are into holy living. We are into accountability. We're not licentious in our approach to sanctification, but we never, ever, ever put sanctification in the seat of being the means of salvation, nor the means of retaining your salvation with Christ. And then the third lesson for us to consider is that we always live our lives in this now, but not yet tension. So we're saved, but we're not yet fully saved. Meaning that the full trajectory, the full implications of Christ's work in our lives, some of it's still future. Our bodies have not yet been made new. We've not yet, been, we've not yet experienced God's final judgment. We've not yet been rewarded for our efforts. We've not yet entered the eternal kingdom. So we're saved, but there's a sense in which we're being saved, not justified, but it's part of our process of sanctification to glorification. And the fullness, the full understanding, the full manifestation of our salvation, we're still waiting for that. 
in Christ's eternal kingdom. But we can have assurance and we can have comfort in the here and now that God has done a miraculous work for us. Folks, here's the beauty of the gospel. Ishmael's can become Isaac's. Ishmael's can become Isaac's. Those that are enslaved, those that are lost, can become Isaac's through personal faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've become an Isaac, stop living like an Ishmael. But understand to be encouraged by the status that Christ has bestowed upon you through the all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that fuel your worship and may that shape your identity and your commitment to living for the Lord, to honoring him with your heart, soul, body, and strength. And may he be glorified through your life as a result. 